As mentioned, I want to uh, deliver a message I've entitled, Easter, A Day Like No Other. Certainly, when uh, you think of um, some memorable days in history, there, uh, there are some that linger long in our memory. I know some of you are history buffs more than others. I mean, your Civil War, your Revolutionary War, your, your, you know, all that kind of thing, and you love history. Some of you hate history. <laughs> I understand that. No, I don't understand. I love history. I like to know where we've come from. Um, and some of you perhaps had some terrible teachers in it and didn't come alive to you, and, and you just, you're bored to tears. But nevertheless, history, it's important to know where we've come from as we look back. We stand on the shoulders of men and women that have gone before us. That's certainly true. We've received a great trust in the gospel, especially. Well, some of the, as you look at history, some uh, of the days that, uh, that stand in our memory are, uh, are good days, and some are not. They're like the mile markers. When you go down 81 or 83, there's another mile mark, another and another and another. And as we look back and we see these mile markers along the, the path of human history, they help us to know where we've come from and all the rest. For me, some of the outstanding days of history just in my short life that stand out. The first one would be President Kennedy's death. Uh, some of you were not alive. Some of you read about it in textbooks or saw a movie on it. But uh, those of us that were alive will never forget that day. I was a young elementary school student. School was dismissed. The whole nation was in mourning over the events of Dallas. I'll never forget that. Never. Even watching the whole funeral procession in Washington, D.C., it was one of those days uh, that uh, mark us, and it certainly did me. Another day is uh, a few years later when Neil Armstrong walked on the moon. I'll never forget that Sunday afternoon, at least up in Buffalo, New York area where I was uh, living on uh, July the uh, 20th. 1969, President Kennedy had said, in this decade, we will get to the moon. He kind of uh, set the mission and the vision, and all were focused on that. And to actually see that, I thought that was phenomenal on that day, sitting in our living room watching uh, uh, Neil Armstrong go down the ladder one small step. You remember that? And uh, there he is. He jumps on the lunar surface. I remember thinking about that because in, uh, with the astronaut, they weren't sure about the surface of the moon. You know, in fact, if we were eons and eons and eons of age, that is the universe, then there's so much cosmic uh, dust on the surface of the moon, it might be uh, enormous. And when they landed, there was less than six inches. And it shouted to us the reality of a recent creation. That we haven't been here that long, and that the rest of that is nonsense. Now, you don't hear any more discussion about that, but that's all that it was. And he jumps on the surface of the moon and plants the, the United States flag. I'll never forget that day. What a, what a great day that was. Another day is the bicentennial year, July 4th, 1976. Now, that particularly stands out to me because that's the year Faithy and I were married in the city of Philadelphia, May 15th. We were just before the bicentennial. So everything was red, white, and blue. Do you remember that? Everybody decorated their houses red, white, and blue. All of our gifts came with red, white, and blue wrapping paper. I mean, when you're in Philadelphia getting married and it's the bicentennial year, ready or not, here it comes, you know, kind of a thing. And the bicentennial and the large ships coming into the New York Harbor and the it was just, uh, it was a glorious time. Again, some of you, what's that? That's a long time ago. Boy, you're old, kind of a thing. But, uh, and, then, and then you could fill in other dates, but another mile marker for sure was 9-11 of 01, right? The destruction of the World Trade uh, Center buildings. Uh, that's another one of those days that stand out. You think of all the days that you live and all the events and uh, a lot of them are pressed between the pages of my mind. So you know that song, that, that love song? That's what they are. But there are a few that stand out, like mile markers, 
as we make this trek through the journey of life. And these certainly are, to me, days that well, I will never forget. Well, having said that, let me say this, that the greatest day of all time, without parallel, everything else fades in com- gross comparison, is the day when Jesus Christ, our Lord, our Savior, triumphed over death on Resurrection Sunday, victorious over the grave in Easter. Easter is that day. We know it as Easter, and that comes from a mythological Ishtar. But Easter, Resurrection Sunday, is that very day. And in some of my previous scholarship work, it's probably, if it's not April 1332, you're right in the vicinity of it. If you want to know what day was that, it was a real day. It was not mythological. It was not some sort of holy religious history without flesh and blood in reality. It really was. There really was a body. It was really in a tomb. There really was a stone tomb with a big stone in front of it sealed. These things really happened. And on that first day of the week, and my guess would be April 1332, is when our Lord triumphantly came back to life and passed right through that stone. Remember the stone was rolled in front, sealed, He didn't need the angels to roll it away so I could get out. Thanks for letting me break out of this place. It was getting damp in there. No, he was already gone. He folded the headcloth like a good carpenter at a finished job, and he laid it right there on the shroud. He came. He was already gone. It was open so that they might see he is not here. He's risen. He's risen, just as he said. Wonderful word of our Lord. That, I say to you, is the greatest day. You may have some personal days that are great, and we have some personal ones. Faithy and I, certainly the birth of a granddaughter, certainly our marriage, certainly other birth of our children. These kind of days are days that we cherish. Historically, there are some great days as we've been doing. But this is the great day, the day of the resurrection of our Lord. Well, the resurrection of the Lord is the very heart of the Bible. It is. You cannot have Christianity without it. It is the heart. Try to remove it, and there have been many who have tried to remove it. Let's demythologize the Bible. Let's get rid of all the supernatural. Then it will be palatable to our rational, finite minds. Well, you do that, and you've just blown up the whole thing. You've destroyed Uh, Christianity. You've destroyed the church. It's not a smorgasbord where you go through like you're going to get a pizza and I'll take some pepperoni and maybe some peppers. I'll skip the anchovies today. It's not a pick and choose. It isn't. Without the bodily resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ on the third day, this day, all is lost. There is no hope. Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, we are of all men most miserable. We've been conned. We've been fooled if there is no resurrection. It's all important. And without it, the whole thing sinks. The whole building collapses. Try to remove it and you destroy everything. Well, the chains of death could not hold the author of life. They could not. He is not here. He is risen just as he said in another message. I said those are some of the greatest words ever proclaimed. He's not here. He's risen. Well, two observations um, upon Jesus' resurrection moving us to worship our wonderful Savior in spirit and in truth. Two observations. What we're going to do simply is in the first observation is look at the evidence of uh, of the empty grave and the missing body. The evidences, like if it were a court of law and you were going to make evidences uh, making the case biblically. Now, the text says, and Jesus said he would, and that's enough for me. But let's, let's assume just from the mind of an unbeliever, what would be the evidences in making the case for the resurrection of Christ? Now, the second thing we want us to look at uh, I want us to look at as we consider 
Easter and its fullness because uh, this is so personal and practical because it gives us in the body of Christ, the resurrected body of Christ, a glimpse of what we are going to look like in our resurrected bodies. All because of Christ, all because of Calvary. But he's the first fruit of them that slept. And we will have a body like his. And we'll notice that in 1 John 3, particularly verse 2. When we see him, we shall be as he, for we will see him as he is. For now it doesn't yet appear what we shall be. And so that's where we're headed. Two observations upon Jesus' resurrection moving us to worship our wonderful Savior. For someday, Paul tells us in Philippians, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. You see, we do it now voluntarily through the work of the Spirit of God and the Word of God in our life. We bow the knee and the heart, say, Lord Jesus Christ. But there's coming a day when all who are obstinate and hard of heart say, I won't have him. They too will bow the knee and confess that he is Lord of all. And of course, that's at the judgment, isn't it? Well, the first observation is... Uh, the historical evidence for Jesus' resurrection, let me tell you right at the get-go, it's overwhelming. It's overwhelming. It's conclusive. Apart from his own words and apart from everything else, well, let's look at A, the empty tomb with the disappearance of his body, argue for it. I hope you're still in Matthew 28. We're going to look at a couple of passages uh, today, this morning, but Matthew 28, verse 6 the first thing we will submit uh, is uh, the empty tomb of the Lord Jesus, but not only the empty tomb, the disappearance of his body. Where is it? Do you have it? Do you have it? Does somebody have it? Please. His body is missing. It's one thing to lose your contact lenses. It's another thing to lose your children. Sorry to say we did that once. We left Sarah and drove away from the restaurant when she was yay big, and Pop was driving, and we were about, what, three miles down the road, and we're Faith and I, in the, it was the old station way, we're in the back seat looking out the rear window, I thought she was up front with Grandpa and Grandma and everyone else, and all of a sudden, uh, I said, where's Sarah? We realized in the car we'd left her at the restaurant, and all of a sudden, the women are crying in the car, and Pop uh, kills us doing a UB, he goes back to the restaurant, and... Uh, uh, we came, in, and there she, that restaurant had closed. She's out on the sidewalk, like, and I go walking up, you left me. You le I think she was scarred today because of that. We lost her. We lost her. Unbelievable. I turned in my parent badge. Was, you know, no longer worthy to be a dad. Well, it's one thing to lose your contact, another thing to lose your children. It's another thing to lose the body of the Lord. Where is it? Somebody, please. Well, that's what we're going to say. And that's in Matthew 20, verse 6. Look at verse 6 here. He's not here. Where is he? He's gone. He's risen, just as he said. Come and see the place where he laid. Well, listen, there's only, there are only a, number one, there are only two alternatives. Either his body was removed by human hands, right? Or his body was removed supernaturally. I mean, when you think of the scope of uh, things, that's about it, right? Either some human being removed that body or something else happened uh, supernaturally, and that's right. Uh, not A, the enemies of Christ would not remove it. I remind you of that. They didn't want his body out of that tomb. Look back just at chapter 27 in Matthew and you'll see just that, that what they tried to do to seal and guard and secure that body in Matthew 27, verse 62, uh, they, the enemies of Christ, that's the last thing they wanted was a missing body. Verse 62 of 27, the next day, the one after preparation day, the chief priests and the Pharisees went to Pilate, sir, they said, we remember that while he was still alive, that deceiver said, after three days, I will rise again. So give the order for the tomb to be made secure until the third day. Otherwise, his disciples may come and steal the body and tell the people that he's been raised from the dead. This last deception will be worse than the first. So what does Pilate tell them? Here's the governor. He's, all right, right, good idea. Take a guard, 
These are Roman guards, not a bunch of pansies, not wimps. I mean, this is better than the 82nd Airborne. You take them and they'll guard it, right? And go make the uh, tomb as secure as, as you know how. So they went and made the tomb secure. And then they put a seal on the stone posting the guard, which would be a paraffin patch. And the, they put the insignia of the governor or who else uh, was uh, immediately overseeing that secured. It'd be like on, sometimes you'll do a fancy letter. Do you still send letters? A lot of people don't send letters anymore. But at uh, Christmas time, you'll send a letter and you have a little paraffin on the, uh, on the seal and you put a little nice little insignia. That's the idea. It was larger on the tomb so you could tell if it was cracked or not. Well, the enemies of, of Christ did not want his body out. They didn't want uh, the thought that uh, this lie, so-called, that the disciples said, See, he's resurrected. But he wasn't there and his body was missing. And so, look at B. His friends could not remove it. They couldn't. There are a bunch of Galileans, coward, afraid, cowering, timid, hiding. They're in the upper room, scattered. Uh, it didn't, it didn't uh, occur to them yet that uh, there was going to be the resurrection. Remember the two on the road to Emmaus? We thought something, he, was, he was going to be the Lord, but now it was all, all is lost. As they walk to the road to Emmaus and the Lord with them, and he opens the Scripture and teaches them how Christ must have to suffer these things. Men re- the disciples weren't thinking, oh, oh, goody, there's day one. Oh, goody, there's day two. Oh, goody, three, here it is. They were really, talk about slow on the uptake. Well, what do you guys got peanut butter in your ears? The Lord's been saying, I'm going to you know, destroy the spot. I'm gonna, they were spiritually uh, not with it. And they weren't expecting it. Right? They weren't. Not at all. So you got the enemies, don't want his body out. Then you got the friends of the Lord. They were completely clueless, scattered, afraid, all the rest. Peter denying the Lord. I don't even know that man. He said three days prior to this Resurrection Sunday. And so uh, they didn't even expect him to rise. Luke 24, 38 says they were filled with doubts. To silence the disciples, I remind you, all the enemies uh, had to do was to produce the body. That's it. That's all they had to do, for this would have ended all discussion, all preaching. Preaching, Caruso means to proclaim. They were announcing the good news that Christ is risen from the dead. And in fact, if he's still dead, all they had to do was, here's his body, here's his coffin, here it is, Go home, this is nonsense, and it would have ended everything right there. But they couldn't. The tomb was empty and his body was missing. The enemies didn't want it out. The friends couldn't get it out. They hadn't even, it hadn't even occurred to them. And so the preaching uh, went on. The church is built, I'm reminded, upon the empty tomb of the Lord Jesus Christ. He's not here. He's risen, just as he said. Well, look at a second piece of evidence, like the old Perry Mason. My father used to love watching Perry Mason. And, uh, and, and I, I was discouraged. Janae, I was discouraged to discover he didn't have that high drama with law. In fact, they, they, they would share. This is the evidence we have. This is what we have. What do you think here? And this and that and every other thing. And so it, it wasn't the high drama of Perry Mason. My father, we used to be spellbound watching Perry Mason on Saturday, you know, was he, how's he going to pull this one out and confound the, the other side, you know, and, and shock everybody well, and, and with the latest piece of evidence or whatever. Here's the second one, B. The, the second piece of historical evidence is the dramatic change of the disciples. It gives ample evidence for the resurrection. What do I mean by that? A sudden change in people is a psychological fact that demands explanation. We could have Dr. David Vandell, psychologist, tell us about that. When people are going down the highway this way, and instantaneously there's an, a 180-degree change, and now they're going this way all the rest of the days of their life, even to the point of dying, that's an enormous psychological change. And it's a change that must have demands an explanation when you look at the evidence found within the text. Remember that after Jesus' death, they were demoralized, they were plunged in despair, they had lost hope in their cause, as evidenced not only by their scattering, 
their fumbling, their unbelief, even when the appearance of the Lord, they, some doubted the text says in Matthew 28, they didn't even, they can't be him. They can't, it can't. They, they, with resistance, came to believe in the resurrection of Christ. And what, a, what amounts to this enormous titanic change in their heart and life, it can only be the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. Shortly after the resurrection, they're united, they're zealous, they're willing to suffer even to the point of death. And I remind you, someday we'll do a study on the disciples from all that we know about them. Uh, Eleven out of twelve were martyred for Christ. We do think that John on the island of Patmos died of natural causes. Even that, he was under arrest there as he, he got the vision and wrote the book of the Revelation, the last book. All the eleven died. Some of you are familiar with uh, uh, Charles Colson in his book, Loving God. And in that, he tells of the whole Watergate thing with Nixon. Remember that? And how that small band of men tried to decide among them, themselves with Dean uh, and, and the rest into this lie. And he's, he makes a statement, we couldn't even hold to that lie for such a very short period of time. You see, here's the truth of it. Men will never die. Women will never die for what they know to be false. They won't do it. They won't do it. Recant. Recant or you're going to burn at the stake. People, if they know it's a lie, recant. Ah, ha, I was only kidding. I was teasing. Didn't you know that? People will do that. They won't die for what they know to be true. They won't. They won't, I mean, they will die for what they know to be true. They won't die for what they know to be a lie. They won't do it. They won't do it. And, and 11 out of 12 of these disciples uh, gave their very life. Th- uh, three, men, and that's where I put, men do not die for what they know to be false. They give their lives for truth. Overnight, these skeptics became strong witnesses, and here it is, who never again yielded to doubts. Never Thomas went to India, and there's a great church there in India as a result of, of doubting Thomas's ministry, and he died there for the Savior. Peter, uh, who denied the Lord there, was cowering, this one who said, I'll do all the rest, and, you know, deny, I never will. And the Lord said, tonight, before the crow, twice, you'll deny me three times, and that very day he did. Died, and according to tradition, crucified, upside down didn't want to be crucified like the Lord, uh, but said, hang me upside down, died for the Savior. And on and on and on it goes. And that kind of change in the very soul of men demands an explanation. You can read Peter's, the very first sermon ever preached on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, where Peter's preaching what? The resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's the theme of of his first sermon. You killed the Lord of glory. It was according to the foreknowledge and the divine decree of God himself. But God raised him from the dead. That's that's why he calls in his epistle, we have a living hope. It's alive. It's alive because of our Savior. The boldness of Peter at Pentecost, the resurrection. What an enormous change in the, in the uh, disciples. Praise the Lord for that. And you might echo the same thing. You might say, in my own heart and life, you know, I was wandering far away. I was in the sin up to my tonsils, and God opened my heart and saved me. And, and, and people today that haven't seen me in many years from yesteryear and know all that would be shocked to see the change in me. That's what God is up to, and that's what He's doing through salvation. He is. If you don't know him as your Lord and Savior, you need to. The Bible says that we're all born under wrath, awaiting judgment. There is a hell to shun and a heaven to gain. Christ opened the door. It's not anything that you have done. It's in spite of it. If you're confused thinking it's because of your righteousness, good deeds, I'm a nice guy, I'm a nice woman, plus Christ, then you just nullified the... the, uh, the benefit of the cross and the death of Christ. It's not you and the Savior. Oh, Lord, aren't we glad that you and I work together on this? No, there's nothing that you could do. In fact, what we did is the bad part. 
Christ did it all. And because of that, he died as our sin substitute in our place. He endured an eternity of hell for me and for you if you know him. And if you don't, I urge you, don't let the day pass without calling out to the Lord, be merciful unto me, a sinner. Oh, I love you, Lord. Thank you for dying in my stead. Thank you for the hope, the living hope of the resurrection. And God will begin to change your life just like he changed the disciples. Wow. Oh, look, here's a third evidence. See, the existence of the church is tangible evidence. The very fact of this thing, this brand new thing. The Lord was told the disciples that um, uh, in Matthew chapter 16, uh, I will build my church. It was future tense at that point. It would begin the, the church as we know it in Acts chapter 2. The existence of the church is tangible evidence of the empty tomb and the resurrection of our Lord. It was said, and one man writes, I have the quote, the possibility of the church died with Christ. In other words, he said he was going to do something. He died on Calvary. If nothing more happened in his life, nothing more would have ever come about in this thing called the ecclesia or the church. And so the church died with Christ and was laid with him in the tomb, and his resurrection was accompanied by the resurrection of the church. I will build my church. Listen, the early church did not manufacture the resurrection belief. There are some that would suggest that. All these band of uh, fishermen and what have you, they got this idea together, and let's tell everybody he was resurrected, and we'll just go, out, go throughout the world and, and, and create this idea that we know really didn't happen. No way. Impossible. 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 It was the resurrection of Jesus Christ that created the church. Sometimes in science class and other places, philosophy, you'll talk about which came first, the chicken or the egg? Now, that's really a nutty discussion, frankly, isn't it? God created all kinds and kinds to reproduce. And so the answer there is very, uh, the chicken, of course. You know, the, uh, what, Roger? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, that's right. The chicken came first. Let me put that to rest for you. You can, <laughs> once and for all, in case you were wondering on that. The same thing is true with the church. The resurrection came first. No resurrection, no church. But the resurrection and the living Savior who appeared periodically during that post-resurrection existence before his ascension that's what produced the church, something brand new. Well, D, another piece of evidence, the life of the Apostle Paul confirms the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, just go over to Philippians chapter 3. Paul talks about his pedigree. Um, tells us a little bit about so-called advantages that he had being a Jew and uh, even more detail, uh, and the very fact that uh, this Jew of Jew, this Hebrew of Hebrews, this, he was probably the most brilliant mind of that day, uh, a student of Gamaliel. Uh, he was an incredible debater, theologian, and yet God wonderfully saved this one who early on persecuted the church and locked up and killed the Christians and set his life 180 degrees in a different direction. The life of the Apostle Paul shouts to us as he met the Lord in Acts chapter 9 of the resurrection. Look at Philippians chapter 3, verse 4. Paul is reciting so-called advantages for him, and he, says, he tells us what he thinks about them in Philippians 3, 4. Though I myself have reasons for such confidence, if anyone else thinks he has reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. What do you mean, Paul? Well, let me, let me tell you my advantages. I was circumcised the eighth, eighth day. I mean, that was the day uh, Jews were to be circumcised. The eighth day. I mean, I, at the get-go, I was according to the law. Uh, I'm of the people of Israel. 
the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, means that both mom and dad were Hebrews. He wasn't a half-breed or didn't uh, uh, become Jewish from Gentile parents. In regard to the law, I was a Pharisee. The word uh, means a separatist. He was a strict observer of the law and all the, the things that they wrote about the law in the Jewish writings. As for zeal, I persecuted the early church. Remember Stephen there, he consented unto his death and was going to Damascus to find more of those Christians, to lock them up and beat them. And he thought he was doing this uh, for God. And yet God was to meet him in the person of Christ in Acts chapter 9 and save him and dramatically change his life forever. As for legalistic righteousness, he says, I was faultless. I, I mean, I kept the law right to the smallest nuance. Verse 7, but whatever was my profit, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What, what is more, I consider everything a loss. That's the word for dung, if you will. I consider it dung or manure, if you will, a loss, rubbish, compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord for those for whose sake I have lost all things, all these things which were good works and so-called advantages. In fact, I consider them rubbish that I may gain Christ and be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from good works, that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God and is by faith. Well, the Apostle Paul's life certainly shouts to us the Saul of Tarsus, of the resurrection of Christ. I stood one time, I think I've told you, at the Philadelphia Museum. You, 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 you all know it. You've seen the Rocky films where he runs up and he's like this at the, right there at the, uh, at the river. And now there's a, there's a statue there, a bronze uh, statue they just put. I was walking around inside that museum one day. Faithy and I were there on a Sunday afternoon, and there was, a, there was a, this beautiful painting uh, of uh, Saul of Tarsus on the road to Damascus, fallen on the ground, looking up, and this light was coming down from heaven. The artist did a beautiful job depicting Acts chapter 9 when he was wonderfully saved. What would you have me to do, Lord Jesus? And there were a group of people around, and a curator was there talking about it, and I almost got sick. And they said, uh, you know, this comes from Acts 9. And most reputable scholars think what happened to, to Saul was that he had an epileptic seizure and fell down and uh, heard voices and lights and all the rest. And we think that's, well, I just about came unglued. Paul met the Lord Jesus Christ. He was the apostle born out of due season. I mean, the rest were already there, and finally him. Nothing else can account for a change in such a, a man as he. In statue and in Judaism and all the rest, than the empty tomb of the Lord Jesus Christ. Nothing, I say, nothing. And the last thing I offer is E, the Lord's Day came from Jesus' resurrection. The Lord's Day. What could possibly cause Jewish believers schooled in sabbatic uh, tradition? That is the Sabbath, the Sabbath. Now, when we were over in Qatar, it's uh, Friday. In the Islamic world, Friday is uh, the day they go to the mosque. As I mentioned earlier, everything shuts down. And then Saturday uh, is the Jewish holy days, the Sabbath. The last day of the week, remember that? The Sabbath, according to the Old Testament instruction in Leviticus and other places, uh, that uh, is the day uh, the Jews that practice go to synagogue. Uh, it was the holy day for Jews. Now, now here we have the birthday of the church and the birth of it, and, and now you have Jewish. Remember, the church today is, most of us are not Jewish. We were kind of Heinz 57 sort of thing, you know, from all people of the world, but mostly non-Jewish. We may have a little Jewish blood, but most of us are not. In that day, the church was exclusively Jewish. They're in Jerusalem. They had Pentecost. They had come to worship. It was Passover. They stayed. It was Jewish. And now we discover 
the church is gathering on the first day of the week. Men and women schooled in sabbatic Sabbath tradition. You get cleaned up, you wash your hair, you get a bath, and you go to synagogue, and you go on Saturday, Saturday. And they had done that all their life. The Lord Jesus did that in Nazareth when he went to the synagogue. We know that. And now it's Sunday. It's a titanic change. It's enormous. Out of those that are cultured and trained and everything else with mom and dad in Sabbath, Saturday. Now they're meeting the first day of the week. I say to you, it's an ex extremely strong evidence. What happened? What event? What was so seismic of an event that caused the shifting of even the gathering together on the day of the week to the first day? And I submit to you, it was the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. There was no papal de 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 decree. There was no church councils, no synods. Let's put this to a vote. They were so utterly filled with joy that this is the day, Sunday, that we celebrate our Sabbath, even our Lord Jesus, who rose from the dead, that they naturally gathered without decree, without counsel, without meeting, without any hierarchy, without any Peter saying, they just naturally gathered to remember in celebration the empty tomb of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so, too, the answer, only an event so stupendous as the resurrection of Christ would account uh, the empty tomb. And so the historical evidence, and we could go on and on, for Jesus' resurrection is absolutely overwhelming to the unbiased. There's the problem. We're all biased. The unbiased heart and mind. It is so. Well, there's a second observation I want us to make before we leave this morning upon the Lord's resurrection, and it ought to move us to worship the Lord our God. And say with Thomas, my Lord and my God. And that is, the resurrected body of the Lord tells us of our future body. Look at, uh, look at this wonderful verse that John writes in uh, 1 John chapter 3. 1 John 3, 1 and 2, but particularly verse 2. John, this is the disciple whom the Lord loved. He was the one who died in Patmos, probably. How great is the love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called the children of God. And that is what we are. And the reason the world does not know us is that it didn't know Him. Here it is now. Dear friends, now we are children of God. And what we will be has not yet been made known. But we know that when He appears, that's His coming, we shall be like Him, for we shall see Him as He is. And so I submit to you that the resurrected body of the Lord Jesus Christ tells us of our future bodies and what they will be like forever and ever. Have you noticed that we have bodies that are, are mortal? I mean, they say to us, it's not very encouraging. You reach the age about 20, 21, 22, you finally get there, and then it's this downhill thing. Down, down, and some of you look like you've been going down a long time. I mean, we can pinch an inch, and we can do this and that, and we take our vitamins and our centrum, right? We take all that, and we run a little bit, but the hair gets thin. David pats me on the head and says, Dad, I can almost see my face now. You know, thank you, son, for that. And the teeth begin to wear out and fall out. Dave made mention he was down in Florida when we were at, in Cutter, and uh, Faithy's aunt is still alive, and she's uh, in her 90s. This is uh, Faithy's mother's sister, older sister, Aunt Doris. David said he was grilling meat for, the, uh, for, the, for Debbie, Faith's sister, Aunt Doris, and he. And I said, was, uh, did Aunt Doris have some meat? Oh, yeah, she ate meat. I was amazed. I said, here she is, 94, and she's still chewing meat. That's very unusual. And being able to, even be able to digest something like that. I mean, I thought I was going to say she gummed it or something, you know. It's downhill. Have you noticed that? It really is. I mean, they do all these surgeries and all these, what do they call that stuff? The needles. Yeah, both, yeah some of you know that real well. <laughs> Botox. 
Yeah, you look, you look like cellophane. I've seen that. You know, we're trying to resist this mortality. We are subject to death. That's what that means. Ever since Genesis 3, you know, we look good and we smell stuff. But really, it's kind of nasty in the morning, isn't it? It is. Look in the mirror, it's frightful. I know. I know you're thinking the same. Here's the hope. And if some of you watch that ultimate makeover show, that's scary sometimes. I mean, that, some of these, I saw this one lady. I think that's what she was. Really. Uh, and she came in, that poor thing, she had teeth pointing in all directions. And her features, really. And then I couldn't believe, they approved her, and they put her through this whole thing. And they even got her losing weight and, and all the rest. You know how she's away from her husband forever. And then they make this big entrance and like everyone passes out because it's like the dental work, plastic surgery, the little, the little lift here and there, a little take out something here or there and all the rest. And it's like shocking. Well, I got news for you. That's not the ultimate makeover because she's going down too again. You know, but she did look better than ever. This is the ultimate makeover. If you, if you forget about everything else today, when we see him, we will be like he is. This mortal will put on immortality. In other words, there's going to come a day when we won't be subject to that downhill. I don't, we won't even need to take vitamins. Faithy's good at that. Did you get your vitamins? I got all this handful of vitamins today. Won't have to will be just like the Lord. And we get glimpses of it as he appears in his, after his resurrection, his appearances during that 40-day period of time. And look, his body provides us with a glimpse of what we can expect. How wonderful. It is the ultimate makeover, if you will. Our body, like his, will be a real body. And I put down the references. You can check these out. It, uh, I love the account here because the Lord says, uh, look at me. And uh, it had substance in John 20, 27. John 20, 27. Uh, there, the Lord Jesus is before Thomas. And look what he says to Thomas. Put your finger here and see my hands. Reach out your hand and put it into my side. Remember where the sword went in? Stop doubting and believe. I mean... The Lord's body had real substance. wasn't a hologram. Have you seen those holograms? They, they do this image like someone's there, but they're, they're you know they're really not. You put your hand right through them, and and it was Thomas when he, if he did put his hand in the Lord's hand that had the nail, didn't go right through it. Whoa! What was that? It didn't happen. It had real substance to it, flesh and bone. That's what he's saying. It had. Flesh and bone in Luke 24, 39. The Lord uses these words. He said, a ghost does not have flesh and bone as you see I have. And so it's a real body. And you will have a real body. It will be the ultimate makeover. And B, our body, like his, will be capable of eating food. I'm so glad of that. I am. I, I, I mean, eating is a pleasurable thing. A lot of the worship of God, have you noticed the feast meals and, the, and these, they would take a portion after they sat and go and eat in the presence of the Lord? God delights in that as we do that. And, and here, here our Lord in Luke 24, uh, verses uh, uh, 40 to 43, we discover our Lord uh, in his post-resurrection body. It gives us indication that we'll be able to even eat. Look what he says in, in, in Luke 24, 40. And when he had said this, as Jesus, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they still did not believe because of joy and amazement, he asked them, do you have anything here to eat? It sounds like my teenage boys back when. <laughs> and they gave him a piece of broiled fish. How about that? Broiled fish. That sounds good. Maybe it's some of that good salmon. Put on the grill, broil it up, Right? What? And he took it and he ate it in their presence. He actually chewed it up and ate the fish. So it tells us our, when we see him, we'll be like him. We'll have a body like his. We'll never be God. He's always the God man. But our bodies will be glorified. No more subject to the downhill climb. And immortal. Uh, and we'll be able to eat. And look, there are going to be f uh, fruit trees in heaven, right? They're going to bloom how often? 
How often will they bloom? Every month. That's right, Galen. Once a month. They're worried about, uh, with this cold snap, whether the apricots and some of the other fruits in Pennsylvania are going to have a big trouble with it, 24 degrees, and it's going to stunt the, uh, the flowering of the fruit trees and the peaches and all that. And I hope not, because we love those things, right? In heaven, the fruit trees are going to blossom once a month and bloom. I don't think it's just a look at. I hope not. I mean, get, get myself in one of those big, red, delicious apples from Washington State or something. We'll be able to eat. Maybe it's fish. Maybe we ought to be eating fish on Friday. I don't know what that means. But broiled fish. Boy, I love that. See, our body, like his, will be of a dis- different substance than anything known today. What do I mean by that? You can check that out in John 20, 26. Remember, the disciples are cowering in the upper room, and the door is shut. They're afraid. They're huddling together, and the Lord passes right through the door, right through and joins them in the room. That, gives, that sounds kind of creepy, right? Well, when you think about the atomic structure, 99% of all atomic structure is space. And somehow there's going to be a rearrangement of somehow of the material or the ability to do that, and so I say it's of a wholly different substance. And finally, D, our body like his will carry the same, it should be identifying marks as before. You will be you. Uh, when I see Matt, it's going to be Matt. Matt's going to look better than ever. Bruce, you're going to look better than ever. Joe, I hope you'll look better than ever. <laughs> Amen, Keith. Amen. There you go. Yeah, you're going to look better. We won't know ourselves. We won't have a sin nature. We're going to be better than ever. It's going to be incredible. The Lord says here in Luke 24:39, it is, it is I myself. It's me. It wasn't someone else. It wasn't smoke and mirrors. It wasn't an, an alter ego. It wasn't. A, it was the Lord Jesus. And you will live forever. You will. You will. Well, lessons for our life. Lessons for our life. Number one. You should have these here. Number one, your faith in the Lord Jesus is built upon the miracle of the resurrection of Jesus. Make no mistake about it. It's the cornerstone truth. It's the foundation Without it, it all collapses. There's nothing. There's nothing. Without it, your Bible's worthless. Without it, don't give another dime to any offering. Keep it. Hold on to your money with your grubby mitts. Don't give another dime. It's wor- don't be idealistic on this. If there's no third-day bodily resurrection, it's all lost. It's all gone. It's the foundation of our faith. The risen Lord. Number two. It's coming. Jesus' resurrection ought to motivate you to serve him all the days of your life. It ought to motivate you. That's what Paul is saying in 1 Corinthians 15, 58, where at that great resurrection chapter, his great final application to all the believers, because of the bodily resurrection of Christ, because of our living hope, he says, Therefore, my dear brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. For you know your work in the Lord is not in vain. We can give ourselves a lot of good things, and we do. We can give ourselves the bad things, and we shouldn't. But one thing that ought to motivate us to fill our life in great and small ways is the empty tomb, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We ought to serve him. All the, It's the only thing that will span the sands of time. We can do good things, but it's like building sand castles down at the beach. You go to the Jersey Beach, spend a couple hours with your children or grandchildren with the with the bucket and the paddle, and you build these huge, uh, you know, sand castles, and you go back later, the tide comes in, it all goes out, and it's no evidence that you were ever there. And that's the result of giving ourselves to things that are not eternal. But when we give ourselves to the service of the Lord, it lasts forever. The things that you and I do, even to the giving of a little cup of cold water in the name of the Lord, if we do it with the right motive to help, it is the hand of the Lord Jesus. Whenever we give a dime to the Lord's work, whenever we teach a class, we help in the nursery, we help behind the scenes, we sing the song, we, we serve the Lord in our witness and serving of a track and the encouragement of people when they're down and out, it lasts forever. 
And the resurrection gives us motivation. Number three, third lesson for our life. If saved, your body will receive the ultimate makeover. That's encouraging. It is to me. And I don't think there's going to be Weight Watchers or any of that stuff up there. Wouldn't that be great? You will, you will, if you know Christ the Lord, it remains. You'll have the ultimate makeover. You won't be on TV and, and all that. It'll be far better than that. It'll be permanent. And I can't wait for that. Number four, Jesus' resurrection ought to change the way that you view death. It is. It is. It ought to change the way. I've stood at the graveside of my father. The resurrection changes all of it, doesn't it? It's not the final goodbye. We're not materialist. Materialism that, uh, you know, when you die, that's it. Throw them like a dog in a grave, and that's it. That's it. That's not it. For the Christian, death, standing at the grave, is the doorway to something you have, can't even imagine. It's it's the great adventure to be absent from the bodies and present with the Lord, and someday our bodies will be resurrected. Now we weep and we sorrow, but not like those who have no hope, because we know they're with the Lord, and someday we shall see them in that great family reunion. Sometimes family reunions are kind of crazy, aren't they? You know? <laughs> this is going to be a great one. It is. And our bodies will be resurrected and be like the Lord. Wow. It ought to change the way you view death. It ought to. You ought not be afraid of it at all, but embrace it. I was thinking of that when we were over in Qatar. I told Faith, you know, we, we don't belong here. I don't have any residence here. There's nobody, no address. I'm just a guest, you know. I don't, I don't fit here. But you know what? I do fit in heaven. There's a place there. My name's on it. And uh, I belong there. And someday I'm going there. You know, we may not fit here, and we often feel we don't fit in this world. But Jesus said, I go to prepare a place for you. Thank you, Lord. There's a place. There's a nice condo, better than anything Ford has ever seen. It's got my name on it, all because of Christ, and yours too. Wow, it changes that, doesn't it? And finally, five and last today, just as you are. Remember Billy Graham's old song, Just As You Are, without one plea? Oh, I would urge you, if you've never trusted the Lord Jesus as your Savior, oh, realize that you're a sinner under judgment. Come to understand that Christ died to pay the only price that could pay for sin. Receive Him as your personal Lord and Savior. And if you do that, you'll be saved. Do it today. Don't let the day pass. What a great day to come to saving faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Easter Sunday morning. Praise the Lord. Well, that's why I say Easter is a day like no other day. Far different than 9-11, amen? Far different than the bicentennial year. Walking on the moon is a great thing, but we're going to go above the stars. The moon is nothing. The Lord will say, you're impressed with that? Wait and you see what I got for you. All because of Christ. Oh, those great words. The great words of the Lord, right? He's not here. He's risen, just as he said. Amen? Amen. Let's stand and be dismissed. Father.